Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right. Hey, Glenn, uh, you want to hear a potassium joke? I would love to hear a potassium joke. Okay. K? Oh, (laughs) Oh, boy. Wow. I saw that one online. I was like, yes, that is the one. (laughs) Well, Eric, I have to tell you, I have been very tired (laughs) without your puns. Very, very tired. Because I don't know if you know this, Eric, but going seven days without a pun makes one week. Oh, boy. We, um... We're going to get in trouble here, Glenn. We're going to start losing listeners if, if we keep this up. That's okay. We'll, we'll gain, we'll gain more of the, of the folks that love it, and uh, and you know, that's that's our kind of people anyway. Well, they asked for it, so exactly they did. It's, it's not our fault. Well, speaking of our kind of people, a, a big thanks uh, to our newest uh, patron from Patreon.com. Uh, thank you so much for to. Um, Thank you so much to Jeff, uh, who who joined in here recently and with a very generous contribution. So, Jeff, thank you very much. Uh, it's much appreciated and uh, uh, and glad that you're part of our group. All right. Well, Glenn, a uh, couple things to to kind of recap and touch on and kind of you know reconnect on with each other since we haven't spoken for a little while now. Uh, I think first up, uh, Thanksgiving. Did uh, Turkey Day go well for you? It did. Everything went. Very smoothly. No, no problems. Fixed the, actually I fixed the entire dinner myself. It was, it was fantastic. All went very well. Yeah. I, I did most of it myself uh, as well. Uh, tried something new I'd never done before. Uh, and, you know, was fairly pleased with how it turned out. Uh, just as a little appetizer kind of, you know, earlier in the day before the main course hit, uh, I, tr- I made some uh, scotch eggs. Uh, yeah. Definitely, definitely like that. We'll have to give it another shot at some point here in the future. So I don't know if listeners are familiar with Scotch eggs. I love Scotch eggs being <laughs> Scottish, but it's basically a hard boiled egg, if you will, wrapped in like a sausage and deep fried layer. Is that yes, how you uh, made it? Well, I, I tried. I don't think you're supposed to do soft boiled and mine more turned out hard boiled. But um, and then, yes, and then a a coat of sausage and then breaded and deep fried turned out really well. So, uh, but I mean, I'll try it again in the future and try for more of that soft boiled, uh, part. I tried to trick my kids once and tell them that the eggs were laid by pigs, which is why they're wrapped in sausage. <laughs> uh, they don't believe me anymore. Uh, yes, yes. The, <laughs> and then the, the, afterwards, the traditional leftovers I've, been doing for a few years now of turkey enchiladas and turkey gumbo so yeah that's great i mean that just sounds delicious yeah so uh glenn you've been traveling a bit uh, here recently uh any stories from the road yeah well right after thanksgiving basically that weekend i left and went up to canada and i taught up there now it wasn't a big deal uh, for them, for me to arrive and travel through the, you know, or have them travel through Thanksgiving, because of course their Thanksgiving is in in October, October right? Right, fake Thanksgiving, faux faux giving, <laughs> as we as we call it in the states. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, I arrived uh, on Sunday before the course, and, you know, with COVID, it was my first time actually traveling internationally like that for, for teaching, and uh, I needed a PCR test to get into the country, and I needed a, a rapid test to come back, so I had to schedule some testing and get that all taken care of, but, you know, it all worked out. It was a great class. I love going to Canada. I, I've forgotten. It had been now, you know, like two years at least since I'm probably three since I've been to Canada and I, I forget how much I enjoy going up there the students are great they're very very well I mean all Canadians in my oh, I shouldn't say all but most Canadians I meet I find very polite very thoughtful just generous and kind I mean they're just a very just a really nice people and as students they're great I mean they you know they're not on their phone, or if they are, they're politely not letting you see see that they're on their phone. <laughs> they're engaged. They're asking questions. They it just re- really good students. And Eric, I was surprised at how many of them are huge fans of the show. It really, it really surprised me. We have a lot of listeners up there who you know either drive to work listening or listen in the office. Uh, I was I was really surprised. A number of them like sent their colleagues to the class with things for me to sign and like autographs and stuff. It was, it was pretty funny. I, uh, I, I mean, I indulged and, uh, it was, I indulged them by, by, by signing certain things. <laughs> I, no, no, boy, that's, let's get that. Yeah. Nobody, nobody took their top off and had me sign their right. bosom. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Unf- <laughs> unfortunately. It's been a long time since I've been up in Canada. You know, before I got into forensics, I, I worked up there for a couple, like three month stints. So I got to know all way more about Canada than I ever knew before growing up in way down here in Arizona. But uh, you know, it's great to hear that 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 you, know, you had such a great trip and and there was such a you know a good group to have in class. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, and I may have said this, I don't know, maybe in some time ago on, on a previous podcast, and it hasn't changed. It, one of the interesting things there is most of the work, not all, but most of the work is done by police officers, right? right. So, so they go through policing, and then they basically get recruited into the forensic section. The thing that's that's so different and interesting is they go through the training. And then after about five or six, maybe seven years tops, they then have to move out of the section. It's like a temporary assignment. They can only stay in for so long. So as you might imagine, right around that five or six year mark when, based on the literature and my own observations, when the expertise really starts to kick in is when they're kind of shuffling off to to do something else. And it's 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 a very surprising approach, and, and you know I joked and I was pretty blunt with them that if I was writing a manual on exactly what not to do for training, it would be <laughs> it, it it would be that. Right, right. It, it, you're just kind of finishing up your I don't know masters or kind of PhD level expertise in this field, you know, as a rough analogy, and all of a sudden it's like all right now do something completely different. And and many of them want to stay in. It's just the rules of of you know their police organization. They they simply can't. Now to be fair, you know agencies like RCMP, for example, do allow their examiners to be ident officers throughout their career. But they're also constantly dealing with crime scene 
and footwear identification and other disciplines and bloodstain pattern analysis and reconstruction and also everything it takes to be a good police officer. So, I mean, they have a number of other things pulling them in other directions too. It's that just the infrastructure of training and who's doing this and how it's being done. That really needs to be looked at. And unfortunately, the people making those decisions aren't either knowledgeable about forensics. They're not the, you know, the, the boots on the ground kind of people who get it. Uh, and it's, it, it's sort of out of their hands. And they're so polite, I don't think they complain very loudly. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I'm teasing. I'm, I, I don't know. And I'm sure that it's not that's not the case for, you know, there's not like another rotation that the officers do in the DNA unit. Right. <laughs> they spend five years doing DNA and then go back to do something else. Good point. You know, it should be treated as roughly the equivalent of. Now, yes. I mean, to be fair, the U.S. has so many different law enforcement agencies that I'm sure there's another agency in the U.S. that does it basically the exact same way. Uh, but it's so easy, much easier to talk about like another country's practices when it's sure. much more uniform than it is over here. Yeah, and well, I mean, one of, one of the advantages that they do have is that they have these national police college exactly. courses where most examiners, if not nearly all, go through that training before you know becoming an expert. But you know, then that they get maybe a few other courses, and by the time they they get a few more courses under their belt, they're moving on to other pastures. I won't say greener; I will say other pastures. All right. Well, one other thing to bring up before we get into the main topic for the show, uh, and that's we got an email here recently from uh, Casey Wertheim. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, so Casey is kind of uh, you know, doing some new things. Um, and uh, he said that um, in this email that, you know, he's kind of was looking at his, you know, his collection of fingerprint books uh, in the basement and uh, decided that, you know, even though he's still, you know, kind of involved uh, in different ways, you know, in the science overall, he, he didn't want them sitting in the basements anymore. He wanted to kind of to get these out to, uh, to people in the field that are more active in doing, you know, hands-on comparisons more and more. Uh, so he is selling uh, these books. Um, he's donated, uh, you know, a number of them to the IAI library, but anything that they already had. Uh, he's uh, he's selling. So if you are interested in some books, some of them very old books uh, having to do with fingerprints, you can go to ccwfingerprintbooks.com. Yeah, that, that's really great. I, I don't know if you've taken a look at what what's in the collection with it. Yeah, it's pretty 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 impressive. I put in a small order for for a couple of months already myself, um, because you know there there were just some books that I would you know, refer to on occasion when I, back when I worked at an agency that were, that they had on hand. And now I don't have access to those, uh, anymore. And some of them, you know, I have like a PDF version of them, but some of those older books, they didn't really scan well. Right. Into PDF. So you can't really see the pictures and, you know, the pictures are the best part. So, um, that's a, there's a couple of miles like, "Ah, I want to actually have a copy for myself. Hey, also, side note, I just bringing this up, you know, we threw up a name, Casey Wertheim, and we're like, you know, Casey, everyone knows Casey. Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, when I was in Canada, I had thrown the name Pat Wertheim out a couple of times, who, you know, who maybe some listeners don't realize Casey is the son of Pat Wertheim. Pat Wertheim right. 
was a you know very I'd say well known famous fingerprint examiner in many ways still is internationally known known. internationally known involved in the Shirley McKee case the Inga Lutz case you know many many other cases and he was a longtime presenter and teacher and fingerprint examiner and you know had a pretty big career with your your old agency Arizona DPS he went on to the Army Crime Lab and now I think he's in Dallas. Uh, Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Yep. Yeah, close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I was just surprised. Uh, The students, you know, just gave me a blank look like, Pat who? Like, oh, right. Not only have you probably never seen the Mayfield images, all you newbies don't know the name Pat Wertheim. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny how much, you know, even over the past like 15 years, how much kind of history has happened right. <laughs> and uh, in the fingerprint community, if you've just started within the past, say, five years or so, you kind of missed a whole bunch. Not that there's not still a whole lot going on now, but well, we, we've we've talked about Pat in the past. So, you know, hopefully this, this podcast goes part of the way towards, I don't know, c- keeping some of those old stories uh, alive from uh, from the people we've talked to. Yeah, that have you know really been a part of recent fingerprint history, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, in 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 this history here, Casey Wertheim is Pat's son. Pat used to, when K- Casey was quite young, bring Casey to the IAI conferences and and even have you know Casey have a go at some of his fingerprint comparison packets. And Casey had a natural eye for it, kind of fell in love with it. And I think Casey started at at the Mississippi Crime Lab under Ron Smith, in fact. And right. and ultimately, uh, Casey was one of the first people that I met in the profession. Sort of said, "Hey, you seem very motivated. You seem really interested, Glenn. Take you under my wing a little bit." And it was because of Casey that I got a lot of access to things like and created the Holy Grail, because Casey had all these papers and um, transcripts that needed to be scanned in, and I, you know, was still in sort of training and had interns, so I, I found a way to take advantage of all the information that Casey had that he was willing to share and then share that with other people. So it was really, um, you know, Casey was one of my first, first people, first friends in the field that supported me and, and took me under his wing. Even if you're doing a lot of reading now as someone new in the field, uh, you've probably read a lot of stuff about uh, biology, embryology, and some of the papers written by uh, Alice White or Alice Maceo at the time. Uh, and a lot of those papers, it was Alice and Casey writing together on those topics. Yeah, I remember them jointly presenting at my first conferences I was attending. All right, Glenn, we ready to get into things now? Yeah, I think we've waxed poetic and nostalgic for a while. We'll be talking about some of the new uh, draft documents that uh, ASB has put out for comment, specifically the standard for Friction Ridge Examination Conclusions. Uh, and the um, and the best practice recommendations for the verification component in friction ridge examination. So for listeners who may have heard other episodes, just a quick refresh, very quick. OSAC is formed under NIST. OSAC writes these documents with a group of multidisciplinary, uh, many stakeholders involved, they get together, write these, they propose these standards, send them to ASB. 
ASB has the opportunity to review them and sign off on them. Uh, it has to go out for a public comment period, but ultimately ASB accepts or rejects them. Now, if they reject them, they go back to OSAC. OSAC can rewrite, and at some point, ASB can even write their own standard, which in some cases they, they might choose to do that. But as we've talked about in other episodes, it's this weird relationship of NIST can't basically approve their own standards so they have the right they have the writing responsibility and ASB is the approval responsibility but if they can't agree then technically ASB can write their own standard and then have that go through the approval process so it's called a standards developing organization or SDO uh, so NIST it's kind of complicated but it's basically like by federal law, NIST can't be an SDO. It has to do with like trade agreements and all sorts of stuff like that. But regardless, it can't be an SDO. So uh, ASB was formed to be an SDO. Uh, so NIST you know, writes the, the standard and then hands it off to ASB, who does what's called the development of the standard, which may include rewriting, which may include getting comments from from the public incorporating those comments or rejecting those comments or somehow dealing with all of those comments uh, and then being the official publisher, you know, the, the quote unquote author uh, of that standard uh, or best practice. It kind of f covers for both of those types of documents. Right. And then after that is officially developed and officially published, then the OSAC can look at it and decide whether or not to put it on the OSAC registry of approved standards right. saying, all right, this is, this is what we have now accepted and we think it's appropriate for the field. Right. And so not surprisingly, any standards coming from ASB are going to have the DNA from OSAC. They're going to, you know, have some of the same language, some of the same thoughts, some of the same ideas, but not necessarily the exact same ones. There, you know, there may be changes here and there. So, in preparation for this, Eric and I have both reviewed the proposed ASB standards, and we wanted to talk about them tonight. But Eric and I haven't set this up or talked to one another first, so we actually don't know what the other person thinks about this or uh, what the reactions to these are, or, or you know, what uh, what comments we may have here. I, I like how you always remember to, to put in that caveat because I, I think it's an important thing to do because people may sometimes get this idea that we've kind of talked this through ahead of time or planned out these episodes. Uh, <laughs> that requires <laughs> scripted something. That's time not at all and this energy <laughs> and motivation and <laughs> preparation. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that, that's that's uh, that's definitely the case. We, uh, you know, just kind of right, let's let's talk about this. Let's review our, our let's um, take some notes separately, and they'll come together on it. Let's see, there, so there's three documents that are currently out for comment. So first off, especially if this episode gets released, you know, quick enough, um, by right around the end of the year, beginning early next year, uh, are the due dates to provide uh, comments back to ASB on uh on these three documents uh, and these three being uh, like i said the standard for friction ridge examination conclusions uh, which we'll talk about tonight and the best practice recommendation for a verification component in friction ridge examinations 
There's a third one that uh, I just don't think we'll have time to get to tonight, and that is the best practice recommendations for the resolution of conflicts in friction ridge examination. So uh, starting with the conclusions document, uh, Glenn, what, what are your, some of your kind of initial reactions to, to the ASB version, this newest ASB version of the document? Well, actually, I have one question right out of the gate for you, okay. but I'll, I'll give you my first reaction is I can live with it. Uh, there the things that changed. I, I will probably have comments on and maybe might make a formal comment. There's a big one that I'm sure we'll probably zoom in on. Yeah. yeah uh, but that aside, the spirit of it, I can certainly live with. I mean, it is very similar to the OSAC document. The main point being it goes from a three-conclusion scale to a five-conclusion scale and allows for uh, other qualified conclusions when there are associations or uh, differences be between the latent print and the known print. So I'll jump to the, the biggest thing for me. The, the biggest thing for me is the change from support for same source or support for different source. It uses different language. It uses inconclusive with features in agreement or inconclusive with features that are dissimilar. So my, my question for you, Eric, is I thought I saw a previous version of this that used support for same source. Did that get changed or am I oh, mis yeah. no, misremembering? Oh. Absolutely. Okay. And and if you look at the the red line version of this document, I did not. You can you can see it, right? So very very recently, the basically the just previous to this version of it had those okay. terms support for different sources, support for same source. Okay. But it is now inconclusive with dissimilarities and inconclusive with similarities. All right. I'll I'll just make this very simple argument reason why I don't like it. And, and and again, the spirit of it's fine because it still says within that category, you can say weak support, moderate support, strong support. So the, the spirit is there. The thing that I, that I don't like about it is, and it's actually something Kerry Hall was very convincing and as well as Christoph and others have pointed out, inconclusive is meant to mean a likelihood ratio of one. It is meant to mean in the middle. It is incongruous if you say inconclusive with features in agreement, basically almost an identification. Since an inconclusive is really right in the middle in a likelihood ratio, of, let's say, of one, then inconclusive with features, lots of features in agreement, almost an identification, maybe a likelihood ratio of closer to millions or maybe even a billion, somewhere up in there, very, very high likelihood ratio. These are two very different things. So I don't see the need for putting inconclusive here. I mean, if you're going to allow for strong support for same source, then why not just have that category be support for same source? I think OSAC got that right. I think changing it is missing the point and definition of inconclusive. OSAC got it right in that they were fixing how we were using inconclusive, which has been a little bit incorrect for a while, and this puts inconclusive back in the middle. That's all. I, but otherwise, the spirit of it is still there. It, I just think the name of that category is a step step backwards. Absolutely, I'm a step step backwards. It. I I think I feel a little bit stronger uh, in disagreeing with their with their terminology here, and I'm not sure it's something I could live with. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's. It. It'd be it's very confusing for for a juror or for an attorney or a cop 
to to hear these conclusions where one of the conclusions like the word that is one of the conclusions is then used in two of the other conclusions uh, that's that is very confusing now someone may say well eric you've been saying this forever like we learned it from you like I, i'm sure that there's many people out there who kind of first heard that inconclusive with similarities uh, that as a kind of phrase in the, the presentation I did back in 2015 on an actual case. Now, I'm not saying I came up with that terminology on my own, it, but it was a big presentation where that was the name of the presentation, right? Right. And, and that is the term that went through the Daubert hearing that I went through, right? We haven't really had a Daubert hearing on support for same source. But... Like I said, I mean, actually going through that Daubert hearing, yeah, it was really confusing trying to explain to everybody these different versions of inconclusive. At the time, just regular inconclusive and inconclusive with similarities. But that's what we had at the time, right? That's what that's what kind of best fit in with the SwigFast language. Right. Moving, taking that step forward, saying support for same source uh, and even, you know, weak, moderate, strong support for same source is so much more informative and simply state in simple language stating what that conclusion is in a way that uh, I, I think that a jury or a layperson um, or someone else in the criminal justice system can better and more easily understand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, just I, it's one of the reasons actually I like Alice's term incomplete to mean that I need right. better records or exemplars because she's taken another inconclusive off of the table. I hate the idea that we have so many different versions of inconclusive, and now that's how I feel that this document is now inconclusive, inconclusive with weak support, inconclusive with moderate support, inconclusive with features in agreement, but additional exemplars may also be needed. It's it's like literally seven different inconclusives one could provide and i'm i'm just i'm not in not in favor of that i i can live with it i'm not a fan of it and an inconclusive is it's a bad name to, it's a bad term to begin with even just for regular straight inconclusive because we somehow often then get into the conclusion of inconclusive seemingly a contradiction there uh, so expanding that now using it in more places is, uh, is we, I, again, I really think we should move forward with that more easily to understand terminology because it's what it's also going to do. Like, you know, honestly, what this is also going to do is keep the, con keep a, a high level of confusion where people mean different things when they say inconclusive with similarities. Uh, or inclusive with dissimilarities. Some people are gonna gonna you know read this and then describe it as really being just a part of inconclusive, and other people are going to say, well, no, it's it's really its own tr separate thing. What it's trying to be here, but having that same term is really going to attach these two in a confusing way and in a in a way that will be explained differently by different people. Yeah, probably. Well, I guess it's time for a strongly worded letter from us. Yeah. Yep. Um, I just wonder if they'll take a C episode of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely encourage any listeners out there, 
if you kind of take our point, if you kind of understand what we're trying to say here, you know, please write in and, uh, you know, share your viewpoint, even if it's the same as ours, especially if it's the same as ours, <laughs> share that with ASB as well. Uh, because I, I think a, a strong showing of, you know, examiners who kind of get where we're going and why we're going in this direction uh, is important for, for setting the standard. This first kind of key building block, keystone type of standard, uh, which everything else follows from. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this as a positive note. I mean, if, if someone snapped their fingers and said, all right, this is the standard, everyone needs to follow this starting tomorrow, I, I can live with that because the spirit of it is there. And I think at the end of the day, one could find a way to be more explicit about that and try to um, anticipate confusion <laughs> with regards to inconclusive. And I su suspect that, like like everything, even when it comes to the OSAC proposed language. Now, there's a graphic here on page four, which I think can be a bit helpful, and it's the kind of graphic I have in my reports. In every report, I use a similar type of graphic. I think there is a way to present it that I could live with, but... I'd prefer not to have that terminology right now, but I'd rather something than nothing. The next kind of big thing I noticed uh, is in the definition for, well, let's go with source identification first. Mm -hmm. In the this new ASB draft, says that there is strong correspondence present such that the examiner would not expect to see the same arrangement of features repeated in an impression from another source. Contrast that with the the terminology or the definition used in the original OSAC document, and it's the conclusion that the observations provide extremely strong support for the proposition, the impressions originated from the same source, and extremely weak support for the proposition, impressions originated from different sources. Right. Good catch. Two differences there. One is is really calling out both propositions here. And I think in the past we've talked about how important that is that you consider both propositions when uh, you're in that evaluation phase. And the second is this downgrade from extremely strong support to just now plain, you know, unadjectivized strong support. Okay. All right. Interesting. I've, I've focused on different elements in that phrase. Okay. Again, so in the new ASB, they kind of combine two parts, the, the strong versus extremely strong and then the arrangement of features repeated, um, that's in a different uh, sentence in the original o OSAC document. Right. So, well, Glenn, what do you think about the kind of the elimination first of that extremely in, <laughs> um, in, in the definition? Well, again, it's something I can live with. I mean, if, if we want to go with strong, then okay, then I have to shift my scale up, around a bit. But the confusing part to me is... Under inconclusive with similarities, they have strong. <laughs> yes. And under source identification is also strong. So my problem is you need a fourth category here. Or strong should not be under inconclusive with similarities. Uh, this is why I love the OSAC document because of its precision. I once had an examiner I was working with on verification say, Glenn, I think this is an identification, but I only have strong support. 
And I said, well, you don't have an identification, then it's that simple. And I said, well, why? Because strong, because identification means extremely, extremely strong, strong support. Yep. Yeah, but I'm only at strong. Then it's not an identification. It, that, that's, the, that's the loveliness of that precision. But now by having strong support overlapping here into inconclusive with similarities, and also under source identification, you've added a layer of confusion. Yes, exactly. They in the standard for like the inconclusive similarities, it's a shall statement. You shall include a statement of the degree of support, which strong is an option there. But then there's there's, I mean, I now don't see the difference between that and identification. It's so like you're saying, it's it's not logically consistent. Yeah, so there is something here. I I don't know if they meant this or not. I'd, I'd be pretty surprised, but maybe. So source identification is the conclusion that the observed data provide substantially stronger. So maybe that's the extremely strong. Eric is substantially stronger. That's you've got strong, and then you have substantially stronger. If that's the case. I mean, why not just go back to extremely strong so that everyone understands what you mean? But maybe, maybe that's what they meant there. Right. So if that if that's what they meant, that substantially stronger is in fact a higher level than strong support, okay, then fine. Let's just use extremely strong there. But the thing that they say, and here's here's where you you pointed out earlier, they say in the next sentence, there is strong correspondence. Now, I don't know if they realize this, but that next statement is not a likelihood ratio statement. That next statement is the numerator of the likelihood ratio. Correspondence means that these two things are visually similar, and one would expect to find this arrangement of characteristics if they are from the same source. So strong correspondence means these two things look very visually similar. And then the second part of that sentence is the I wouldn't expect to see that same arrangement is another way of saying and they have high discriminability, which is the denominator of the likelihood ratio. I don't know if they deliberately, again, meant that. So perhaps, perhaps, Eric, we are wrong here and that it's not strong support. It's substantially stronger support is the identification. And the second part of that sentence is referring to correspondence, numerator, and discriminability, denominator. There's there's definitely a thing that I do prefer here in this document over the the original OSEC uh, uh, version of this, and that is how they used similar language and a similar, you know, phrasing in describing exclusion and uh, identification. Agreed. Absolutely uh, agreed. Yes. That the substantially stronger support is, you know, is, is that same kind of phrase versus in the original OSAC document. And I, I tried to fight against this and that one is exclusion is just they did not originate from the same source. A flat out statement of fact that I think is an over is a, an overstatement. Right. I'm with you on so, that. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that is an improve, improvement. But I wish they would then continue that logic on and then use the same type of language in the uh, support conclusions as well, uh, instead of having this, having them just phrased differently. So it doesn't, you don't draw this clear line, right? Right. Agreed. I think we're on the same page of, okay, separate from 
Okay, do they take strong away from the inconclusive or similarities section? They make the identification extremely strong. Like, just stepping back, say, okay, what is an identification? When do I want to make an identification? I would say it's an extremely strong support. Like, that's that's where I want to be when, you know, I want to have that feeling when I'm making an identification. That's why I would kind of, you know, lean in that direction. That That's what I think is, is the appropriate wording for what an identification is. Like you were saying with, with your student that, that's, or, or verifier that said, well, I'm just at regular strong. Um, right. The original OSAC document that I, I'm a fan of, I have quibbles with some of its wording here and there as yeah. well. Uh, so, you know, I can quibble with a few things here, but the spirit of it is fine. I think I'm with you that by using strong or substantially stronger instead of extremely strong, I don't understand why why not just go with what a whole bunch of other people had already signed off on and is already sort of out there in the community. Why change that? And then why qualify with a modifier, strong correspondence, when you don't elsewhere, unless you mean something by that. Because as you point out, with inconclusive similarities, there is no modifier. It just simply says there are observed similarities between the impressions. Yep. Um, so, and then the, the last thing I wanted to point out was just in the example section. Um, so uh, overall, I think the addition of the examples is, is helpful. Yes. Um, I think I would maybe tweak a couple things here or there. The most confusing part was, again, what we already kind of talked about in relation to strong is a lot of the inconclusive with dissimilarities or inconclusive with similarities examples use the word strong. Yes, yes. And then if you go down to the source identification section, it talks about substantial. Um, so again, maybe that's, that's what uh, that's what needs to, needs to change is uh, is not really taking strong out of the support sections uh, for same source or different source, but um, just changing the word strong under identification and exclusion to be substantial. There's substantial correspondence present. You know, I I'd feel a lot better about the document overall if if with those two changes of putting in in the kind of full conclusion, substantial instead of strong, because they already use it there once. So just continue using that and then don't have it in two spots. And then going back to the support terms instead of inconclusives. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't noticed that too, other than when I was reading through the examples, it felt like it was written by someone differently than who had written the body of the up above because I, yeah. I, I felt the disconnect and and you point to a great example here uh, just another one i'll point out is that it says consider a situation where there was substantial correspondence such and then it goes on to say such overwhelming correspondence uh, and elsewhere it says strong correspondence all all in regards to an identification so between substantial overwhelming and strong correspondence all three of those represent identifications that that's the confusing part to me it's inconsistent in its use of the modifiers you know hopefully that you know the, these these kinds of of suggestions you know are are seen and mentioned by multiple people so that you know we can go through 
uh, another round and and get this worked out because I'm I'm definitely ready for this document to be uh, to be out and and published and hopefully in a state where OSAC can approve it for its registry. All right, Glenn, let's move on to the verification document. So I, I want to kind of first start off with just kind of a, a high level kind of behind the scenes thing that, that may kind of guide some of the discussion here, or it may inform some of the discussion here. Uh, so you'll notice at the very beginning, first page, kind of first thing on the page, best practice recommendations for verification. Uh, so this was written as a best practice uh, document. And uh, overall, you know, there's, there's kind of two documents that get types of documents that get worked on in these groups. One are standards and one, the other is uh, best practice. The way that OSAC wrote this up and, you know, the kind of the way things were explained to the OSAC group when writing this up was um, that it really comes down to shall versus should statements. However, the, the kind of the impression people were in at the time when uh, OSAC wrote up the, their version of the verification document was that uh, in certain situations, a best practice document could include shall statements. So that's kind of where it was, the way it was written up. More recently, it's been, you know, kind of decided that, nope, if you need, if it's, if, if you want to have a shall statement, it's got to be in a standard. And that's the only place that you'll see the word shall. Hmm. Uh, everything in a best practice is going to be should at best. Okay. So if you look through the newest version of this verification document, every single shall statement has been switched into a should. And in my opinion, we need to basically you know, reconsider this entire thing from a standard perspective uh, because verification of identifications, it's got to be a shall. Like this is, this is something that you have to do. There is just no other way. No, no agency should be looking at this official document from a standards developing organization and saying, oh, I mean, we should be verifying IDs, but eh, you know, we ain't got time for this. It, the, just that word, I think, is critical enough to really weaken what this document is trying to do. Interesting. I I wasn't aware of that background, so that is helpful to hear. I had noticed shoulds and 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 such and shalls and thought eh, I would probably have put that a should. Uh, so now that makes more sense. Okay. Well, you mean you mean you would have put it as a shall? Sure. Yes, I would have put something as a shall. Uh, let let's let's go back that so. You, you made the statement earlier, all identifications shall be verified. Are there scenarios or situations where we can accept that perhaps an identification is not necessary? I mean, certainly as a private examiner, I can say that some of my identifications are not verified when I'm speaking with the attorney, although technically I might be the third examiner looking at something, you know, if it's sure. been, if it's passed through the first agencies, two examiners, and now I'm getting it, I'm technically the third examiner, but if I reach conclusion, they're not always being verified. Or does this not apply to private examiners, but should, should only be applied to publicly funded government forensic service providers? 
No, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from. And, and I think in the, I mean, there may be technology coming forward that, that can kind of take on that role in some situations. How, however, I think that may still then qualify as verification. So no, I, mm. I, no, I, I do think that, that, that verification is really a, a critical part of that examination process. And if it was up to me, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd put the shell on, uh, you know, across the board for, for every decision that, uh, that gets made. Now, again, that can take on different forms, um, where, where we may, may be able to go into other options other than a, just another examiner, you know, doing this, but verification in some form for, for every conclusion. Now, let, let me be even more provocative. I, why are we imposing that upon ourselves? Because it's not required by accrediting agencies. It's not required in other disciplines. Some disciplines don't even require you know, technical review in every case. The agency must determine which, you know, some, which cases will go through technical review. So this verification is something that we have chosen in fingerprints to put upon ourselves. Does it need to be to that high? In, in my opinion, yes, that that is a in in seeing how you know, many different agencies, um, you know, that the the quality of the of the conclusion is is really um, is related to this this verification process that you know just the simple reporting as to, you know with one one person's opinion doesn't maintain the the I think the overall quality that uh, that we want to to maintain for our field. Hmm. So if someone in let's say the UK or Australia where they have two verifiers, they go, well, look at you guys in the, in the United in the United States. Your quality is so low because you only have one verifier. I think there's definitely situations where a second verifier is uh, is helpful and even warranted. But there's other situations where where the, the the step up from one to two doesn't really gain you a whole lot. Mm. Um, <laughs> but the the even just the ch- the chance for a second person to review and and give their call of saying, "Hey, I think even a third person should look at this one," is 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 that's the, one of the big things that you gain as opposed to just one person making the decision on their own. Yeah, I'm just messing about. All right. So what did you think of this document, Eric, in general? Besides the shall and should part, were there things that you generally approved of? So overall, yes. I, I liked um, you know, much f- fewer problems with it. Really, it's just that shall part that I, I have a real problem with. Um, the Everything else is, is really fairly minor. Um for example, the um, kind of de- de- you're talking about open versus blind. Again, this mm-hmm. is kind of nitpicky, but it's they talk about open being. You know, you look at all of all of the stuff. You know, you, you see who who made the decision, uh, all their their decisions, their conclusions, their uh, opinions is what it's listed off here, and then also all their examination documentation. And I, I can see some agencies wanting something in between where they may say, Oh, here, look at the conclusion, but don't look at the documentation or, 
heck, even in this own document, it talks about not looking at the documentation right away, right? It just, just, you know, if you're doing an open uh, verification, just look at the, you know, start off by your, just doing it on your own and then look at all of the documentation. So it, it for me, open versus blind, there's lots of things that can be open or blind, and it doesn't necessarily have to be all one way or all the other. Again, that, that's not a, a major critique, and I don't think it would, uh, I wouldn't have any issue with it going forward without that kind of clarification. Okay. Yeah, I, I think overall, I actually, I, again, if this snapped our fingers and it was in place tomorrow, I could live with it and... Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not as, I guess, um, hung up on the shall or should part. And there are some things I think should be shalls, but that could always be something that an agency decides to include. So you keep it as best practice recommendation shoulds and then allow the agencies to increase that to a shall if, if that's important to the agency. But like you said, I have little nitpicky things. I might, if I was, if I was involved in writing, and I probably would have said, "Well, sure. what about this or that?" But I can, I can live with most of it. Well, so the the one other kind of just again relatively minor thing was the reasons why a comparison would go to blind verification as opposed to open. I think another important step here would be. The examiner discretion, right? If the examiner is looking at this and is like, oh, "Man, this should go," I, I, I kind of want this one to go to blind verification. That, that should be called out, right? And similar, similar kind of situation. If the regular verifier, the open verifier, gets it and looks at it and goes, "Geez, this should have gone to blind verification." It's kind of tough. Yeah, good point. Then, then, um, you know, having a, a process to go into that. Now, the original OSAC document had that verif verifier discretion option, but you know it didn't include the original examiner option to send it to blind. Uh, so I think that's an oversight from the OSAC uh, version of it. But here with ASB, they just redlined that whole section out. Hmm. And but again, I think it's an important thing, an important reason uh, why uh, some comparisons you know, could go or should go to blind verification that the examiner think, just thinks it should. Yeah. So, uh, Glenn, you're talking about the, I just kind of want to go off on a little side tangent here. Uh, it's, it's only kind of, I guess, tangentially related, but you're, you're kind of, you know, stirring the pot, asking questions about shoulds and shalls in relation to verification. And I mean, again, I, I said my, my piece on it. Um, there's another document another topic where i i've been very uh you know strident in in insisting that it should have a it should have that it shall have a shall <laughs> statement and that is uh the documentation of mm, the verify uh not not, the ver not verification but just documentation of just in general the oh the original examiner's documentation Oh, okay. All right. Is that covered in this document? Did I miss no, no, this isn't covered here. This is oh, this is a this is only related with the should shall kind of statement. Ah, okay. What, what do you think about the a statement that at least for source identification or the you know support for same source uh, conclusion that those conclusions shall have documentation? You know, basically showing the basis for the examiner's conclusion. And then the other conclusions having basically should statements about documentation. 
Well, I guess like anything, I can think of exceptions, right? But I do agree with a minimum level of documentation. But, you know, let's say you've got 20 identifications to the, to an individual on a certain surface. Do you need to document every single one of them the exact same way, the same features? I mean, again, these are the exceptions. Putting sure. those minor exceptions aside, yes, I would agree that I'd want to see documentation in each case, I, the documenting the basis for the conclusion. If you state and believe that you're practicing a science, if you believe that you're practicing some sort of scientific ACEV, then yes, I'd like to see the manner in which you applied ACEV because documenting your observations is a basic tenet of science. So yes, I would like to see that. Now, in a large case, I can, again, see areas of exception, but to see no documentation in a case at all for the, the bases, the fi your findings, I, I, I no longer can support that. There was a time in my career when I was initially against it because I was taught that way, and then right. initially on the fence and unsure, and I'm now at the point in in my career and understanding of forensic science that it is a basic thing that we must all do. Yeah. I mean, I would say if, if, if there's that many IDs in the case and, and to the point where you're kind of, you know, maybe don't need to document anymore, well then just stop comparing. Right. Sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> do, you know, if you can, right. I was saying, okay, you know, additional comparisons remain to be completed. You know, let me know if you need those done. Yeah. But if you want to go all the way and, and actually reach a conclusion, well, there, all right, get that. The, the, for me, the, the solution to this, you know, documentation problem isn't documenting less. It's make documentation easier. Yeah. Interesting. If documentation just occurs automatically while the examiner is just doing their comparison, well, there's no reason to argue about it anymore. It just, it just happens. And, there's there's no reason not to do it because it's it's being documented simply by you doing the comparison, hmm. uh, and at, at that point, so then it's okay. How do we get to that point? Oh, I've got a question for you now. Okay, if you could only do one, would you prefer verification or documentation? Ooh, what is more important? Yes, that's one verification I'm or documentation. This this is this is a little bit of a struggle be between you know what you were taught versus kind of what you have, you know, grown to understand. Cause I was very much taught with the verification of every, of, you know, all the IDs and documentation. Eh, you know, don't worry about that. So uh, documentation to the level I do now, I guess. Um, but no, I think I would come down on the side of documentation is the, is the more important um, part of that. But that's it's a that's a fairly close race for me. Interesting, I I agree with you because when it comes, maybe they work together, right? Because if if you're even if you're if you're documenting and no one ever looks at what you document, well, then your documentation might just be garbage. So you know that, that doesn't really do any good. Maybe it's the combination of the two where there's someone ensuring that your documentation is is um, is sufficient to support your conclusion. And and that's – so they really go more hand in hand. And without 
without one, then the other is less is less important or less reliable or, or less uh, um, is lessened somehow by not having the other. I don't know. Now I'm just talking out, you know, off the top of my head here. <laughs> All right, Glenn. Well, you know, good to t- talk this through. I, I, I am, I'm really torn again as, you know, a couple of years ago, we talked about how these same documents haven't moved at all in so many years. And we're still waiting for the first document to come back to even consider, uh, OSAC putting it on the OSAC registry. Um, so I'm, I've, I'm, you know, heartened by you know, the work that Heidi has done at ASB to, to get these things moving forward. But I, you know, I'm concerned about, you know, kind of some of the changes, some of the significant changes that have happened. So it's a, I think I'm in, in, a, in a similar boat as what you kind of described as really anticipating these being done and ready, but also concerned that they, that they are not as good as they could be. Yeah, I hear you on, on, on that. I'm, as I said, I, I think I could probably live with more of this. I would probably make some internal tweaks in my own standards, you know, for this and feel I could justify it. But the I think the biggest thing is the loss of the support for same source category or conversion of that category to inconclusive. I think that's probably one that I'm going to struggle with now living with simply because of the arguments made earlier inconclusive doesn't mean almost an identification yeah you know using it now for you know a number of cases on dozens and dozens of of comparisons yes scores of comparisons um you know for the past year or so it 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 fits so well and it, it works so well and it's you know so it's easy to explain and describe exactly where you are especially in in the difference between the identification and the support for same source yes it's extremely strong for same source just has this extra special name identification and then everything else is just strong moderate etc support for same source it all fits together right it's this logical consistency right and breaking that you know make does um it doesn't make as much sense uh, to to as the examiner using it or when you explain it to someone else so anyway, with that, um, if you guys, like I said, if you guys have any comments, please, uh, you know, write in to, to ASB. Yeah. Not uh, us. Write ASB. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, and you know, the, they do go through all of those and they have to adjudicate each of those comments that comes in. So, you know, lay out your argument about, you know, what you think you know, the direction the field should be going here. And if you do have any questions for us on other topics, uh, ideas for shows or, you know, on anything else that we've, uh, we've talked about here in, in episodes, you can email us Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or Eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, Glenn, do you have any uh, classes uh, coming up here soon? So I've got a little break now for the end of the year and into next year, but yes, uh, there are courses Live courses in Florida, I think in March, 
March and April, and then uh, and then you can get those courses at ronsmithandassociates.com. I believe they're um, the ACV course or the exclusion course, plus also the practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom, that class I teach with Brendan Max, the defense attorney, and Carrie Hall. Pleased to announce we're going to have two of those on the schedule for next year. One in the spring, first week in May in Boise, Idaho, and the second one in Nashville in November. So two on the schedule. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And if you're interested in webinars, if you can't take a live class, go to Alice White's company, which is evolveforensics.com. I've got the exclusion class uh, that is um, uh, now offered through Idemia that will uh, be getting some dates set here in 22. Got a couple agencies I'm talking to, just got to figure out exactly where and when. And they'll likely be both an in-person and a remote uh, uh, version of that class uh, at some point in 22. Just got to hammer some of the dates and locations down. Uh, or just dates for, for the online version of it. So um, I guess with that, I'll close out. Uh, if you guys want any uh, any of our you know merchandise, Double Loop Podcast on glasses or shirts or hats or stuff like that, uh, go to doubleloopodcast.com, and you can also see uh, all of uh, our old episodes there. Uh, or you can see even more episodes at uh, patreon.com, slash double loop podcast uh, after you sign up and join us uh, in that group you know and help uh you know support the podcast through our website you know, we got to pay for all these things website the hosting space for all these episodes uh etc all this nice equipment that we have now so love to see you to join that group there remember the opinions expressed in the show are those of the speaker not necessarily of anyone that they might work for and with that i'll talk to you guys next time Bye, everybody. Have a good week.